This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, my guest today is uh, Dr. Rita Sharma, who's Director and Associate Professor at the Center for Dharma Studies and also Co-Chair of Sustainability 360 at the Graduate Theological Union. Uh, Rita, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here and greetings from uh, Chile, Berkeley. <laughs> Indeed. Um, uh, we'll be speaking today about uh, a fascinating, uh, important new book um, on none other than Swami Vivekananda. It's called Swami Vivekananda, His Life, Legacy, and Liberative Ethics. Uh, Dr. Sharma is the editor of the book. It's by uh, Lexington, uh, published uh, in 2021, which wasn't that long ago, uh, considering we're now um, second week of January 2022 in real time. Um, tell us a bit about, I know there's a, there's, 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 a, there's a story about how this book came into being. Tell us about the backstory. The book came into being uh, as a result of uh, Swami Vivekananda's 150th birth anniversary. So at that time I was professor at, uh, I was teaching at uh, USC in Los Angeles and uh, the Hindu community um, raised the funds and asked if I'd be interested in doing something to commemorate his birth anniversary. And I said, well, I'm already planning to do that. I'm planning to have I was planning to do uh, a symposium and they said, well, uh, let's make it a really large symposium and get people from all over. So we had scholars from, uh, from Europe, from um, the United Kingdom, from Canada, from India, uh, Australia, and the United States. And so it became a, a very exciting conference. Now, all the papers uh, were invited and uh, they're not all in the book. And sadly, you know, there were people who got very ill during this time after the conference. Uh, some very valuable um, members of our cohort, including uh, Joseph Prabhu, for example, died. and. So did Gerald Larson, and these are huge names, and they would have contributed to the book. I still have their rough chapters, and so you know, it's a it's it's a very tragic thing that we lost so many people along the way, and because we were waiting for them to get well and they didn't, um, you know, the book took this long to be published because, it, you know, it just seems that you're talking about a person who taught compassion, uh, Swami Vivekananda taught to um, do seva to others, you know, and to turn your, um, uh, you know, moksha wasn't just about escape moksha, 
was about a way of, of living in the world. Um, uh, in a, so Mumukshutva, the desire for liberation was expressed uh, not just through navel gazing, but through companionable, communitarian, compassionering for the world. So now we're doing a book that talks about him and I can't tell my, um, my contributors, we have our own colleagues who are ill, um, but let's forget about it and move ahead, you know. So, so that delayed the book, uh, but it was worth it. And um, I know their spirits are with us. They're there. I know that, you know, their light is still with us. Um, and so it was a very interesting um, effort because you will find tons of books on Swami Vivekananda. So, you know, the first question you could have asked me is, Rita, why another book on Swami Vivekananda? Do we need another one? Well, what you believe, two kinds of books. One is uh, put out by his own monastic order, in other words, the Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna order of monks. And... Uh, that monastic order is a very erudite order. And because it's erudite, um, there, there's a high quality to their work. But the thing is that it's, it's, it's not necessarily objective scholarship. Uh, in, a, in a way, it, sh it shouldn't be. You know, there, ha there has to be shraddha. Um, conviction, faith, uh, respect for the tradition and for the person who carries the torch of the tradition, Swami Vivekananda. So there's that category of books. And then you have monographs, actually, by individuals who have written their viewpoint, which may be uh, positive, negative, or neutral. But what you don't have a lot of, and this is surprising, is a body of work that integrates Indian and Western perspectives on this major figure coming out of the International Academy. So, you know, when we were researching this, um, when I was researching the volume, uh, making a decision whom to invite and so forth, you know, I, I was so surprised. I said, well, there must be so many other edited volumes like this in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and I found one. And it, now that volume is, I think, uh, nearly 30 years old. So, so the, the book presents the many different aspects of him, and it, dif and, it, and it also reflects the different ways people perceive him and see him. You know, one question that, that might sound um, might sound obvious. I mean, certainly Swami Vivekananda needs no introduction insofar as the entire um, um, Hindu world, uh, scholars of Hinduism, uh, practitioners, uh, those with Shraddha, as you say, um, would be well acquainted with the name Swami Vivekananda. But could you underscore for us why he was so important a figure? What is it about Swami Vivekananda that is so 
crucial and noteworthy, especially as pertains to this publication? Yes. Um, the, the thing is that, you know, you can look at him and see um, groundbreaking concepts, thoughts, and activities in, 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 with every step he made. Now, you may agree with them or disagree with him. That's not the point. The fact is, he kept on breaking ground. And he's not just a part of Hindu religious history or even Indian religious history. He is a part of American religious history. And I, as an American, am editing this volume and I convene the conference from that viewpoint, that this book is about someone who is a pivotal figure in American religious history. So we have um, the 1893 uh, Chicago exhibition, the Columbia exhibition, and uh, you have the Parliament of Religions uh, as you know, uh, affiliated with this. And there are so many people involved in it who, uh, in terms of organizationally, who are from uh, marginalized groups like Swedenborgians and, uh, you know, so forth and uh, Unitarians and other, I mean, you know, and it's not surprising that they wanted to touch base and welcome um, other thought um, from, especially from Asia in this case. And the thing is that Swami Vivekananda, uh, you know, anyone who is a historian of the Parliament of Religions, of uh, the first Parliament of the world's religions, will find that, you know, he was, he's called the star of that, uh, of the Parliament, because he took it by storm. He ended up being called to, um, give talks all over the country. And he wasn't expecting all that. You know, he left India, fairly unknown monk, and he returned an international celebrity. You know, and uh, that is America's pizza effect. So <laughs> very much part of American religious history, very much one of the pioneers of um, the uh, North American um, vision for uh, pluralism, uh, uh, the history of the North American um, move towards multiculturalism in certain areas, especially in religious areas. And so uh, this idea of the universal, of the possibility of the universal, which now we call, you know, perennialist philosophy, and we now say post, we're in a post-perennialist age, we have theology without walls, which is a new category. You know, there it, it all ends up at the same place in the sense that we might be going higher up, but we're standing, but the, the ground is the same. In other words, from the same location, we're going higher up. But where is that location? It's a location he created. Fascinating. I um. The anniversary, the 150th anniversary of the parliament um, took place in Toronto in 2018, I believe. And it was my first and last time uh, contributing because it was in my backyard and it was um, a significant event. I was on a panel with uh, some great scholars, my advisor, Beth Roman and 
Hillary Rodriguez, he's at Lethbridge, actually, where I'm currently teaching. And, you know, it was, um, there was something very special about the commemoration. It was great to participate to that dialogue and that space. And it really, I think, is difficult to imagine that what it took for him to contribute to that space and the impact he had, because we see it in hindsight. But can you imagine venturing out into a world that is entirely foreign to you? Like, it really is something um, quite monumental that he achieved. As you say, uh, rags to riches overnight in terms of uh, popularity. It's, it's fascinating. In, in your introduction about the backstory to the book, you mentioned that listen, we can't just write a book about Vivekananda. It's, we're not just learning about tradition, we're learning from tradition. And, 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 and this is an exemplar. And we should, we should, we should um, follow suit ethically in terms of how we treat people and how we engage the world and people in it. So this is a really important theme, isn't it? Um, a, a moksha is not just for the cave or the ashram, the pursuit of moksha. You know, the, without putting words in your mouth, um, unpack this. So one of our presenters was Pravrajika um, Vrajaprana. Um, and she's, she's a scholar and she's also a nun of the uh, Ramakrishna mission, or the order, the, the Ramakrishna order. Of, and the thing is that she has a chapter in the book um, which is really fascinating. And it's, it's a chapter on his relationship or his attitude towards women. And her, her perspective is coming from within the order. She is an American woman who is a Hindu nun in America and a scholar of the field. It's really quite remarkable. Because before this, so, you know, one of the things that the book says is his life, it doesn't talk that much about his life. Um, it does talk a lot about his legacy and it talks a lot about his liberative ethics, uh, which is, a, you know, part of the title. Now, the thing is that part of his liberative ethics was the emancipation of women. And he took that very seriously. In fact, uh, he has written about it in, if you look up in his collected works, he's written a letter uh, to one of his brother monks. And he says, you know, the reason that the West is ahead of India is because the West worships Shakti all the time. And we denigrate Shakti. So what, you know, when you first read that, you're like, what, excuse me, what, worshiping Shakti, what, he's not, he's talking about women. What he says is everywhere I go, the door is open for women and that the women are the first to be placed on a table. Women are the first to be asked, what would you like to have for dinner? You know, that the, but feminists consider a very problematic and destroyed uh, 20 years ago. Uh, 30, maybe 40, um, before I was, <laughs> before my time. But at that point, for him to see that coming out of a highly patriarchal Bengali culture 
where women were the servants, were serving, dasis. And there was a Devi Dasi dichotomy. Yes, you had yoginis who were gurus. Yes, the, the master of Swami Vivekananda, the spiritual master of Swami Vivekananda, his first guru is a woman. Um, you know, so she's she's a tantric yogini, she's a shakta, she's a yogini, she's you know, very erudite, and Vivekananda praises her and so forth. But she is a devi. You have a devi dasi dichotomy. Dasi means servant, devi means goddess. And if you are really advanced, if you are erudite, if you are special in some way because of privilege or because of your own efforts, you become Saraswati, you become Durga, you become uh, Shakti herself embodied as a woman. But if you're not that, which is 99% of normal women, you're Dasi, you're the server. And he's used to this and he comes to the West and he sees it's the opposite, you know. And so yes, women are still at home cooking and so forth. But the circles that he's moving in, um, I don't know that he's aware that he's in these very privileged circles, but the women of those circles, it's not just servants who are saying, uh, Madam, what would you like to have or whatever? It's men as well who are, you know, giving women that privilege of place. Now, that is a highly problematic, sophisticated patriarchy that feminists have teased out and, you know, unpacked. But we're talking about a long time ago, you know? So, and at his point, from his perspective, this is a worship of Shakti. That's what we do when we do Kumari Puja, when we worship a young girl as a physical embodiment of the goddess. And she's treated as such. She doesn't have to do anything special for it. She doesn't have to be super educated or uh, a yogini or a guru. She's just a person. And we take her and we worship her as an embodiment. And Sri Ramakrishna did that to his wife, who wasn't a you know, 12-year-old. She was a girl. She was an adult woman when he did the worship. Um, so that is there in the tradition. We have nearly 30 rishikas, uh, sages, in the Rig Veda. Uh, the, uh, I would say the pan-Hindu authoritative uh, Shruti or um, revelatory textual tradition of the Vedas. And we continue to have philosophers in the Upanishads, but it begins to diminish. Then we have a renaissance of women leaders during the Bhakti movement of the medieval era. So it's not that it's not there, but what you don't see is monastic women. So you do have gurus and yoginis and, and rishikas and so forth. You have monastic women. So Shankaracharya begins Hindu, you know, sort of a systematic Hindu monastic orders, dasanami, you know, the orders. And then Vishishtadvaita follows suit. Dvaita follows suit. And then we just keep going. And so Sri Ramakrishna followed suit. But what did Vivekananda do? The first time in Hindu history that you have 
um, women being ordained not as yoginis, rishikas or gurus, but as nuns. That's the first time. The Buddhists already had this going on in India. The Jains already had this going on in India, but we did not. Perhaps we felt we didn't need it because we had the yoginis and so forth. But he felt we needed it because they were part of a systematic tradition and a systematic theological um, order. Um, that was a, a massive step. Now, you also see the very first time that you have women religious leaders, which is what nuns are in America, who are Hindu women, but who are Western. All of this becomes part of American religious history and Indian religious history. Fascinating. Definitely an important bridge in the history of religions. Um, how are, there are four sections of the, the, the volume. Tell us how it's organized, the, the overarching themes that organize the work. Um, well, the, the book, you know, if it's, if it's very difficult to make a decision on, on how to organize the book, because um, you could have organized it in many different ways. But I, I was more interested in organizing, organizing it according to the arguments about him, if that makes sense. So, you know, there has been very, you know, it's, it's surprising, but uh, those who are not familiar, I should probably explain why briefly. But Vivekananda is really a contested figure. And so one of the things that has been argued about, one of the contestations is that he's not really Hindu in the sense of being in that Vedic uh, tradition. And uh, definitely not Advaitin as in the Shankarite tradition. And so what is he? He's just Neo Vedanta, which is not really authoritative and not really valid. Now, my point is that if you have that perspective, then how, how is Reform Judaism valid? You undermine Reform Judaism, you undermine Mormon or the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Um, you undermine even Methodist denomination. I mean, so much of Christianity is recent. So much of, uh, of um, the American Jewish uh, denominations, vast number of people are in recent denominations like Reconstructionism and um, Reform and mo even, even mo modern cons uh, conservative. I'm sorry, even modern Orthodox and conservative. None of these are ancient, okay? these branches. Now, they will argue that they are ancient. It's just that they are, you know, in a stream of interpretation that they're part of the Jewish reception history, part of the Christian reception history. And what they're doing is they're receiving it and experiencing it and transforming it in the contextual moment. So why can't Hindus do that? Is that the privilege only of other people? You know, so 
the arguments that um, are made by several people, but most particularly um, James Medeo, for example, makes this argument uh, in revisiting appraisals of Vivekananda. Uh, James Medeo makes this argument that, you know, he is between Shankar and Vivekananda is 1000 years, okay? A millennium has passed. In that, that's a millennium of reception history. And if you look at the name of the chapter is Neglected Advaitas, the genealogy of Swami Vivekananda's cosmopolitan theology. What he's trying to say is the faith of Vedanta itself was moving in this direction, a more liberative, more emancipatory, more inclusive direction over that millennium to begin with. And then it ends up at Swami Vivekananda. And so it's not, he receives it. He's part of the reception history, part of the stream as a river that keeps running. That's what, you know, theological traditions are. They're not cast in stone. So, you know, um, Sharda Sugirtha Raja is also in that uh, section on revisiting um, appraisals of Vivekananda. Uh, Jeffrey Long talks about complementarity, not contradiction. Swami Vivekananda's theology of religions. Um, you know, people had have a problem. Some people have called him an Advaita supremacist because he says that you know he he doesn't want a Christian to become a Hindu or a Muslim to become a Hindu. He wants a Muslim to become the best Muslim and the Christian to become the best Christian. But what he means by that is to, to really go into, uh, to, to go into contemplative practices and contemplative approaches to, the, to these traditions, which would elicit the, not just an intellectual, but perhaps an intuitive, a contemplative experience of divinity, which transcends finite comprehension. And you know, Sri Ramakrishna said very much the same thing, and he hasn't been attacked for it. But because Vivekananda, you know, spoke so much more about it, I think that when he says that, you know, everyone's going up the same mountaintop, essentially, when the mountaintop, when they reach the peak, it's a bit of Vedanta, he's not talking about Shankara's, you know, systematic theology. He's talking about the Brahman of the Upanishads, and he's not talking about Hindu texts and Hindu conceptions. He's talking about the infinite Purnam. So this is, and then, you know, another section is legacy of service. And that too, you would think that is not a, you know, contested area, but it is a contested area. Because um, in India today, a lot of service organizations that are based in, you know, that are affiliated with right-wing politics, um, see Vivekananda as, uh, as, as an inspiration. And so his organizational legacy, uh, with, you know, particular reference to Seva, um, they have appropriated it. So that's not, I mean, whenever service is done and whenever a compassionate uh, 
care is given, whoever is giving it, uh, that's good. But, uh, you know, because in some cases there's political affiliation and alignments, it has become, his legacy of service itself has become um, a place of contestation. And then uh, going back to part one, Vivekananda in relation to Hindu philosophies and major thinkers, this is very important because again, we start with this problem of the word neo-Vedanta, neo-anything neo uh, coming out of any ancient tradition, whether Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, um, because these are streams. These are very, you know, wide, long, ancient streams, and they keep on changing, and you never step into the same river twice. So you have to look at the entire river of the reception history, the tributaries that feed it, and, and see what is his relationship as a thinker, as a philosopher, with the different streams that feed the reception history of the Hindu world and Hindu philosophies in general. Arvind Sharma has some interesting thoughts to, to conclude the volume. Um, what is it that he says? I mean, and do you agree with it? How do you, how do you bring all this together? No, I gave my, my contributors a lot of freedom, except when it came to uh, citation style <laughs> and references. <laughs> you know, there I was a tyrant, right? But when it came to um, the way that they conceived of him, I did not run interference because I wanted to showcase the variety of views. And some of them I, I will agree with and some of them I didn't agree with, but that's all right. So Arvind Sharma's perspective on Hinduism is well known to me because we know each other very well and uh, we published together as well. I have a different perception. Um, I suppose that his, his perspective on what it means to be Hindu is based on, um, it's based on his self-perception as Indian Hindu. Although he's been in Canada for, for longer than I was in school, um, you know, he, he still, he doesn't, he sees himself as, a, as an Indian Hindu. And it's impossible for us, Raj, I think you will agree, to grow up in North America and not be North American. It's impossible. And so if we are North American Hindus, then we have to accept this concept of at least, if not a religion, at least a spiritual tradition. You know, we're going to be looking for our roots. We're going to be looking for, for the, the, you know, those tributaries that take us right back to the headwaters, because otherwise we have no identity. And so if you're looking at it from the Indic point of view, the Indian point of view, then you look at the history in India, you see all of these syncretisms and so forth. And you say, well, anyone, anyone who says they are Hindu can be said to be a Hindu. Anyone, in fact, um, who said, this is Arvind uh, Sharma's perspective, that if you, you have to basically say, I'm not a Hindu in order for 
him and many other people to say, okay, you're not a Hindu. But if you don't say that, you know, so, but from my point of view, that's like an anonymous Hindu. I am not going to walk down the street and I'm not going to look at people and say anonymous Hindu here and anonymous Hindu there. Uh, to me, being Hindu means something very, very specific. It means being in that very wide river that has its headwaters in the Vedas and then keeps on collecting tributaries. And so there are recognizable theo theological, theoretical, you know, knowledge system, um, you know, epistemologies, ontologies. These are recognizable across Hindu traditions. And you can see the distinction between them and uh, even Jaina traditions, even Buddhist traditions. You can see distinction. And the foundational distinction, I mean, I received and accepted um, an Avalokiteshvara initiation a very long time ago from the Dalai Lama. And I practiced in the tradition for a, for a while. And it's still very much a part of me, the Vajrayana. But I'm a Hindu. <laughs> and that, you know, what that does is it enhances my, my you know, uh, sense of the divine feminine in the Hindu context. But there's so many, yeah, there's, there's so much that comes to mind. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, please continue. No, I just wanted to mention that if we, if you don't want to put any boundaries, uh, the old joke goes, you want to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. <laughs> so, idea is you want you have porous boundaries we know that every every tradition culture and even human being has porous boundaries but there are boundaries nonetheless even if we want to pull them down we'll end up creating new yes porous boundaries i'd like you to underscore this legacy of service. Um, why is that so distinct? Is it distinct? Isn't Seva perennially Hindu? What's Vivekananda doing that's, that's so uh, marked and discernible? You know, it's, uh, that's a great question, Raj, because um, very recently, uh, a few weeks ago, I had a, a Hindu-Jewish uh, conversation on, on uh, justice, and I brought up the Dharma Shastras and the Nibandhas. And so, you know, you had, um, so you had this tradition of lineages of what we would call essentially the law books, right? Dharma Shastras. But they're not law by themselves. They are law as in having their ground in uh, spiritual uh, doctrines. Now, they're supposed to be in alignment with dharma. <laughs> and dharma is the most important word probably in Hinduism and uh, Buddhism and Jainism. Now, but, but they don't mean the same thing everywhere. Dharma shastras or the law codes, the codes of customs, the kings used them. Govern governance used those dharma shastras and um, supported Nibandhas, uh, which are 
comment commentaries to change the codes uh, in accordance with time and region and place. But when we had, you know, wave after wave of, um, you know, different uh, groups of people coming into India and setting up new kingdoms and new new codes. So, and finally, when the British colonial um, governance established itself, the Dharma Shastras basically became completely redundant. Um, they died, essentially, historically. They were thrown in the dustbin of history, which is unfortunate because it's, it's worth tracing. Um, and Arvind Sharma does a brilliant job with this kind of work. He has done a lot on this. Is trace the Dharma Shastras um, into its theological roots, into its philosophical roots. So the idea of ethics and the idea of seva and service, and if you ask me, well, what's the big deal about Vivekananda and service? I mean, were Hindus never taking care of each other? Were they just letting people die all over the streets? What, you know? Well, the thing is that the, the Hindu worldview in terms of uh, rights, it, you know, the, the, especially the American, I think Canada is a little bit much more balanced in this. Um, in the United States, everything begins with in your individual rights, even if those individual rights lead to not liberty, but license, and that license takes away my rights, not only to flourish, but to be alive. Okay? So this is a one perspective on ethics and care within the context of a greater community, rights orientation. The Hindu world had a responsibilities orientation. The idea of dharma was the right discharge of sacred responsibilities. And what are the sacred responsibilities? every single relationship you have. In this moment, my sacred responsibility is to you and to your listeners. In another moment, it's to my students. In another moment, it's to my children and so forth. So the, the idea of dharma is you fulfill your responsibilities and everybody's rights will be looked after. So in that way, everyone's continuously performing seva. But in relation to in alignment with their particular relationships. So if you're a teacher, the seva is to the students, if you're a doctor, it's to your patients and so forth. Now, with Vivekananda, what he did is, I don't care about your personal life, you must do seva there. You must, that's your dharma. In addition to that, I tell you, he said, the daridra, you know, the mukha, and everybody on this planet deserves your service in addition to what your responsibilities are already. Beautiful and inspiring thought. Um, we're close to time for today. So I want to ask, um, was there anything else about the work of Rivekananda that you wanted to touch on? Yes, I wrote, um, I wrote a chapter for the book, which I then decided not to publish because I've decided that's going to be the core of a, of a book that I'll be writing on him um, in his relationship to Shakti 
or the divine feminine, the divine mother. And, uh, you know, he didn't talk about it often, but he talked about it en enough so that one can actually glean uh, a mystical theology of the divine feminine from Vivekananda's many allusions to her. That quite resonates for a number of reasons. Uh, for years, I've mused, uh, of course, uh, I don't study Vivekananda. I study uh, the myths of Shakti. <laughs> but um, I mused for, for some time that this was his, his, his guru was Ramakrishna, uh, a mystic in, 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 in trance, uh, inebriated with the blackness of Kali, you know, the, the, the dark of the night. He was, you know, drunk half the time by all accounts and so clearly this must have powered his path and one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking earlier and i tend to not, not interrupt speakers obviously is yeah he's not he's not a he hasn't he doesn't have um he's not a vedic priest he's not part of the the the, the, the formal order but he's received the transmission of this shakta tantric guru and that's got to count for something at I've always suspected he was very purposefully not forthcoming about the authority or his perceived authority, his platform from which he spoke. So I think there's, uh, I suspect there's much to be gleaned from, from what you're looking at. I'd, I'd love to hear more about it and certainly have you on the podcast to discuss it when it's out. Well, it's, it's been a pleasure, Raj, as it always is. And, um, my next book, which I'm just about, you know, submitted, um, is called Radical Eminence and Ecological Emancipatory Theology of the Divine Feminine in Hinduism, obviously. So that will, what we just discussed, will be touched upon there as well. Fantastic. We'll have to have you back. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, as always. Thank you. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with uh, Dr. Rita Sharma, editor of this brand new Lexington 2021 publication on Swami Vivekananda, his life and his legacy. Until next time, stay safe, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the impact of Swami Vivekananda. Take care.